Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and on our podcast, we amplify the voices of women whose stories are meaningful and moving and compelling. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, you're going to love our guest today. Uh, she has been doing a lot of the work that I'm passionate about for many, many, many years, and her name is Penny Coleman. Penny, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I've been so excited about having you on for a really long time. It seems like we booked this a long time ago, um, and today's the day. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, I thought of thought about different different approaches to telling you about myself, and then I finally decided I'm going to start with the fact that I was born in Denver, Colorado, in, in 1944 to an immigrant artist mother. Uh, my father was in medical school. Uh, they went there of course, uh, to Seattle and then to uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And that's when my very unusual growing up began because in Kentucky, my father was doing his residency in psychiatry at the United States Public Health Service Hospital, commonly known as the US Narcotic Farm. It was one of the first hospitals in the world uh, set up to treat narcotics. So this was run by the federal government. And during my growing up, the family stories included uh, the, the tales of the fact that my babysitters were people like the writer Alexander King, William Burroughs, wow. um, King Cole, who was at the uh, known as King Cole at the time, who of course we know as Nat King Cole, and uh, a person who very much impresses my grandchildren, Judy Garland. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Wait, let me stop you there. Did you say these were your babysitters? And did you say William Burroughs? Yeah, those were always the family stories that I was oh told. Oh my God, I love it. At the time, I, of course, I was, and I have memories. I, I do have memories from that time, but I was, those are my earliest childhood memories, but I was uh, three and four years old. But I, I particularly remember one of the patients, uh, a man named Eve, who was a tall, very rangy fellow with wild hair and wild eyes. And apparently he was there because he had um, killed his wife with a, with a hatchet and, and, but oh he, made the most, he made the most exquisite soft boiled eggs. And I can remember myself as a child, he'd perch me up on a counter and then sort of, you know, talk to himself and flail. And my father was very uh, casual about all of this. And uh, he would, you know, God, he would, Eve would be telling God to, you know, not to tell him to harm me. It was really quite surreal in retrospect. But as a three-year-old, I was just entranced and happily waiting for um, the most perfect soft-boiled egg. So all of that was normal, and that kind of notion of normal continued in, in 1949 when I was five, when my father went to work at Warren's Hospital, which was located in North Warren, Pennsylvania, in the northwest corner of the state, where I grew up on the grounds of the mental hospital until I was in seventh grade when my father then resigned and went into private practice and we moved off the grounds. So, and I had uh, three brothers. Uh, one brother was just 13 months older than I was, then uh, uh, my brother Vin and then John and Kip. And then 
the year I graduated from high school, my parents, same parents, uh, had another child. Uh, so I have a sister who's almost 18 years younger than I am. Wow. And, and at this point, I'm, as those of you who are doing the math know that I am 76 years old. Uh, one of my brothers and my sister are the, their survivors. Uh, in 19, I guess it was must have been 1955, Red Book Magazine sent a photographer and a writer to our house, to this um, state hospital grounds. And in those days, the hospital was self-sustaining with a farm, with a farm and um, the, the patients would work in doctors' homes. So, you know, we had a patient who was a cook and they were our friends. I mean, we'd play ball, the, the ones who were free to, to walk the ground. So this was, the, these were the people I knew the best and the people who were a part of my life um, in, in actually some many nurturing kind of uh, fun ways. So Redbrook sent a, a, a reporter and a photographer who stayed with us for a week and an article, what, published an article in Redbrook magazine in 1955 when I was 11 titled The Strangest Place to Find a Happy Family. And it's illustrated with lots of color photographs. Uh, it was uh, Kim Novak, remember Kim Novak? Yes. She was, she was on the cover of Red Book. I, I actually still have a copy of, of the article. It was quite exciting. That is so fascinating. I, I have to say that, so when I was young, my father, who's passed on, but um, he was the, it, the parish coroner. We lived in Louisiana, so it wasn't county. And he would visit the state hospitals and I would go with him. So I'm really drawn into your story. And as I grew older, my son um, was fascinated by everything Alcatraz, where my, my dad was also a doctor at Alcatraz. And we, we read the books, uh, Al Capone Shines My Shoes, Al Capone Does My Shirts. And it talks about children like yourself who lived on the property, who lived on, at the facilities and the life of children who are, you know, of the doctors or the nurses or the, the, um, the guards, et cetera. How fascinating. What an amazing childhood and story that you have. Have you written about this? Um, not sort of bits and pieces, bits and pieces of that, but not in, a, in, a, in an organized way. Um, it's certainly on my list of things to write about. <laughs> but, uh, it, it was uh, the, 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 the interesting thing of it is, is that when we would leave the, leave the grounds, and go off to school, then we would have to deal with just enormous pre prejudice and yes. you know, nastiness and hostility um, that that was rampant uh, against you know and fear fear of people with mental illness. So it, it was a very early education for me in terms of discrimination and navigating different. And I must say, I, I found my life with many of the, the, the people who were inmates or patients at yeah. the hospital, far more sort of um, peaceful and benign than some, some of my- I hear you. <laughs> I hear you there for sure. Yeah, that's still probably true. <laughs> so, anyway. Absolutely. Their yeah. unpredictability was predictable and it was comfortable. And yeah, 
yeah. and, and, and known, you know, known. And yeah. also it was sort of a, 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 at least at what I experienced, sort of a gentleness with children. Yes, yes. I love this story. You're amazing. I want to put you on stage. Um, <laughs> this is incredible. So let me ask you what from those days, what lessons from those days did you um, take with you today? Or do you, um, I know that you commented about the discrimination and bias, and, and that's probably happening more today than it has in many, many, many years. But um, I don't want to get into politics, but I'm just saying that um, for some reason that dark underbelly has surfaced and, um, you know, I see a lot of discrimination. My, one of my colleagues does a lot of work. Uh, she's on the Commission for Disabilities and we do a lot of work with what inclusion means. And oftentimes people with mental illness or with disabilities um, that you can't see, for example, get forgotten, right? Yeah. So yeah. you sound like a, a voice that cares about people like that. Well, uh, I, in terms of the, the, the major learning is not to be afraid that the, there's, there's this sense in my, I have to say my life partner was head of the um, pro program in intellectual disabilities and autism for 45 years. So, wow. yeah, so we're, we're a disability, we're disability uh, family. And my, my, my sense is that, that some of the ugliness and the discrimination and the hatred and the name calling all the whole gambit of things, it, it comes, some of it comes from ignorance and fear. It's yes. from not, and my first biography actually, Breaking the Chains was about Dorothea Dix who revolutionized the care of mentally ill people uh, in America in the 19th century at a time when people with mental illness were chained to walls and kept in dark dungeon cell cellars and terrible, just horrible, horrible abuses. And you know, she she would talk about the the fact of the the ignorance. And there was also ignorance in the in the medical profession, just enormous amounts of ignorance that leads to fear. Uh, that leads to fear. I know that I had classmates who were afraid that it was contagious. Oh I, yeah, I've know, heard that. That if I helped, if if they touched a pen that I had bought bought at the canteen at the hospital canteen, that they would they would catch it. So um, I I'd say what I've learned, and I think there's been a real effort in, in the last few decades to educate people, you know, celebrities who come out and try to normalize depression or bipolar. Um, and I, I think that um, there's just so much work, there's so much work to do. And there are also systemic, there's systemic issues in terms of policies and attitudes um, in terms of accessibility issues for people with physical disabilities. Um, there's just sort of a wide range. And I, I do think that, that there is a part of it, and it's just, it's a complicated, your question is, has a complicated answer, but I think part of it is just the ignorance and the fear um, and the, the, um, the, the 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 wanting to not have to deal with it because uh, you know what what if it happens to me right it, 
it's it's just it's a really complicated thing but i i find as people have exposure and they they get to know people who have any type of disability they 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 they, they then begin to sort of not be so fearful or so i don't know ugly more accepting it's it's complicated and it's painful it, it it's painful it is and i'll tell you i'm working with um uh the san mateo county um office you know health department and some other officials and i would love to get you involved on um you know stopping the stigma and doing more with policies packed and practices around mental health and that stigma that exists my colleague that I mentioned is not only our lawyer at my companies, but she has a child with behavioral disabilities and he's been diagnosed since he was five and he's 13 now. So she fights really hard. And I think she would be very fascinated to meet, you know, you read your books, have you involved in her work? Um, if you're interested, I would love to make an introduction. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very, very committed to 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 all of this and so yes yes because again i think another piece is those of us who are very committed have to connect and have to form a yes a, just a a, a a tight tight a kind of um yeah right yeah. To, to force these issues and to and to say this this is where we're we're we're, we're we, we need to deal with this and we need to deal with this with through, you know, our humanity, through uh, our commitment to, to justice, to equality, to all the things that, that we, we supposedly value, but in practice often isn't. Right, right. And I, I even think that there's a I was lot of, go ahead. There's a lot of pushback from some who have uh, these disabilities who don't want to suffer from the stigma so they won't speak out. And we've got to encourage them that there's a psychological safety to speaking out and that there is that circle that you're referencing there to help them fight the fight and to amplify their voice or to you know, raise awareness. Yeah, I, I was just gonna to say too, and I, yes, I absolutely agree with you. The other thing is to really pay attention to our language we, we're, we're being sensitized to paying uh, attention to language around race, but we also need to pay attention to language around gender and around disabilities, to not use the R word, which of course you know what the right, R word right. is. But, but to just think about that, or even to use, I mean, my, my partner is sensitive uh, in my writing. She's sensitive to, if I use the word, if I, talk of use idiotic or idiot i mean we're, we're I yeah mean, because of our commitment to the issues and because we both deal with language and writing but to not use those kinds of words to call say somebody's dumb or somebody's an idiot those those are really hurtful words and they're stereotypic words um you know on the continuum that then goes to you know calling the you know the r word which i'm sure you're right Right. Know what I'm talking about. They so do. I think that, and that's a, that's a, that may seem like a small issue, but for me, the, the use of language is not a small issue because it comes out of somebody's using those kinds of words and not thinking about the impact or what it is meant, um, is, is a reflective, reflective of, of not being fully sensitive to, to, 
to people. I agree. We, we have a couple of courses and I have one of my colleagues that teaches on the language of inclusive leadership and words matter and the importance of pronouns. And um, I, I will say I'm guilty at one point in my career, I used the phrase you guys in a room um, and, and offended a couple of people and was asked not to use that phrase anymore. Uh, and I understand the sensitivity around it and the validity of that request. And I no longer say that. I say folks or y'all, uh, which you know may not sound as fancy as you guys, but it's less offensive and more appropriate. So you know, I have, I, I, I have to say, I, I almost am, I'm incredulous that you actually brought that up because that is absolutely my sore point, the use of the word guys. And it is the only feminist issue in which I will admit I think I've given up on. And I think I gave up on it when our firstborn granddaughter at the age of like maybe 18 months, she had just started talking, called out to my partner and me and said, hey guys. And I thought, oh you know, my. And I just now, literally 10 minutes, 10 minutes before um, you, you, we started talking together, I had been on our second floor. And uh, Linda had the radio on, and it was there was a, a news report about um, Juilliard, um, and yes. that they were in trouble about the use of the N word. And I literally ten minutes before we talked, I walked downstairs and I said, "I'm going to start a campaign against the G word." And oh, that's so funny! And Linda laughed and she said, "Guy," and I said, "Yes." And it's like, I, I often say, you know, one of, one of my books was is about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. And one of the things that struck me when I was doing my research about them was that the one reform that Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucy Stone gave up, the one reform they gave up was dress reform. That there was, when they started wearing bloomers, they were so hassled and so terrorized they felt it was detracting from their larger mission. And so they went back to wearing, they never went back to wearing corsets, but they went back to wearing, you know, the long cumbersome dresses, et cetera. And so I, when I sigh in my head and I say, okay, so Penny, you've given up the fight against the use of the guy word. I reassure myself and I say, well, Elizabeth and Susan and Lucy gave up dress reform. <laughs> But pick now, your battles, Penny. Pick your I battles. Know, Susan, you've heartened me. You've heartened me. I think I'm going to go back into I'm going to go back to the fray. <laughs> I think you should, because I'll tell you what, I was floored because I, you know, I was raised in the South where when I moved to Boston, I was told, don't say y'all because it makes you sound ignorant, right? So I said, well, what should I say? And they said, you guys. And so for 30 years, 20 years, I've said, you guys. And then when I got in trouble, I asked the HR person, what should I say? And they said, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. But it, the use of it is ubiquitous. I just hear it I just hear it all the time. So you don't think I should give up? You think I should say Well, I think there's not enough awareness around the sensitivity or the validity of the argument that you're making. So yes, don't give up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks, Susan. <laughs> That's awesome. You're so amazing. My cheeks are burning. They're on fire because I'm smiling so hard. This whole conversation. Uh, you're really incredible. I'm serious. My cheeks are, are burning like fire. Um, I'm, I'm also enjoying this. This is fun. Well, I knew I loved you since before I met you when I, I talked to your daughter-in-law um, about you. And I was like, you know, you're pretty awesome, Kat, but I want to meet your mother-in-law. <laughs> I was like, you're pretty cute kid, but I like this woman. You got to introduce us. She's amazing too. She's amazing too. So, yeah, no, she let me ask you this. So you've had a lot of great accomplishments. I'd love for you to talk about the books you've written. Uh, and maybe if you've had one that stands out as your proudest moment or whatever you'd like to talk about, but share with my audience about all these amazing books you've written. Well, the, in, the interesting piece for your, uh, your audience, I think, is that I didn't start writing until a month after my 43rd birthday. Um, I just made the decision that I was going to try to make it as a freelance writer, and I resigned a job with a paycheck and set off into the world of freelance writing. And it was, it was sort of funny. I, the first article I, I sold for $25 was called It's Never Too Late, and it was an article to Twins Magazine. And what I wrote about was the fact that I did not subscribe to Twins Magazine until my twins were teenagers, which may seem, which was a funny kind of thing. That is hilarious. Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> so that, that was my first. And I think I had sold some other articles like what to do when you're rejected, but I got paid in, um, in extra copies of the, of the, the magazine. So I started off on this career as a journalist. And I actually, I guess my accomplishment is, is that I made it. I start, started publishing essays and articles and books. And all of that led to um, a really fun and stimulating speaking career and teaching at several colleges, including serving as a distinguished lecturer at Queens College. And that was all as of the outcome of the many books that I've written. Um, in 1993, I won the Miller Lite Women's Sports Journalism Award for my cover store, story in um, Sports Illustrated for Kids on girls and sports, uh, having had a rather major fight with the publisher who, even though my story was the cover story, I think he sort of panicked and the message came to me that he was going to put a couple of male football players on the cover. And I, I happened to live across the river from New York City and my editor called me and said what had happened. And I jumped in my car and raced across the George Washington Bridge and stormed into his office and uh, had a, this is like, you know, in the early nineties had a, a royal um, a fight. Wow. Um, yeah. And a, and assuring him that, you know, that my brothers and my three sons, what his concern was is that boys would not read the magazine. That, that was a widespread belief at the time. Uh, I heard that over and over again. Every time I would pitch uh, a, an idea about a book or a magazine article or an essay about women, I'd hear somebody would shake their head and say, but Penny, women don't sell. Um, huh. men, men won't read about women. Women will read about men. That That's still believed. If you just look at the movies that are produced and the yes. books that are 
published. It, it's still, and, and books that are published for women typically are like the, they always have to have romance in it. I, and I'm making overgeneralizations, but, the, but it's pretty much true if you sort of look at how books are pitched and nonfiction is for men and fiction, especially with some romance in it, although now they're adding a little more adventure um, to appeal to younger generations of women. But the, I think in, in terms of sort of the accomplishment, and, and I remember early on in my career, I went to a conference and a woman was speaking and she said that years ago, she thought she could make it as a freelance writer. And what she discovered is that she couldn't, the finances just didn't work. And I sat there and I looked at her and I said, but I'm going to, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to make it work. And the truth of the matter is, is although I've published just for me, amazing, wonderful books, many of them uh, social histories and biographies of women, it, because of the attitudes about publishing and where they're gonna put their promotion money, um, it didn't become lucrative, but it led to other wonderful, wonderful careers and I do have a body of work and I have a couple of classic books. My book, Rosie the Riveter, Women Working on the Home Front in World War II um, is a great book. And if people ask me what I've written, if when I say Rosie the Riveter, everybody knows it. And so all of a sudden I become a celebrity, which is fun. Right. Um, but that book was written in 1995 and it's still in print and it's a classic. Um, also, Adventurous Women, Girls, A History of Growing Up Female in America that was published in 2000. I'm now meeting girls, I'm meeting mothers, and I'm meeting girls who grew up reading that book. Their, their sense of themselves as female was shaped by reading my book. That's so cool. It's, That's amazing. I know, and that, that will happen. I recently bumped into somebody of uh, uh, actually a, she, a girl the same age as, as my firstborn granddaughter. And um, her mother actually had been one of my students at Teachers College at Columbia. And I hadn't seen them at, at, in years. And um, when the, the mother recognized me, we were actually at a, at a concert before the pandemic. Um, her daughter looked at me and she said, you're a legend. <laughs> because you she are, I, I have and, to tell you. Um, so. I, I just bought your book. <laughs> I'm like, I knew that you'd written some amazing books, but I didn't want to, uh, to research you too much before the podcast. Remember, we talked about that. And I'm like, oh, my God, I know that book. I know that book. I didn't know that I knew the author of that book. So incredible. I just purchased it on Amazon. Folks, you should purchase this book, Rosie the Riveter, Women Working on the Home Front in World War II by Penny right. Amazing. And, then, and then the other one is my most recent book, which which uh, which was abducted me in because it's called The Vote: Women's Fierce Fight, and it I I've been researching it for years because I I, I think my immigrant mother who 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 left um, the Czech, Czech what was then Czechoslovakia just as Hitler was marching in it brought me up with and I write about this in my book I write about how she brought us up to think of the vote as a sacred thing. And yes. so I've always, always had that. 
And the story of women's fierce fight, which I date back to 1648, when Mistress Margaret Brent went to the colony of the of Maryland, the assembly and the assemblyman and the governor and said she wanted two votes, one for herself because she was a landowner and one because the governor of the colony had just died and on his deathbed, he had made her his executrix. So she in 18, 1648 asked for two votes. Um, so, which is sort of where I start the story in, in my book. Of course, typically it started in, you know, 200 years later in 1848 with the Seneca Falls Convention. But the, the, the that I, so I'd been researching the book and talking about it, but then I actually started to write it during the 2016 uh, campaign. And yeah. about midway, I said, one of my sons and I just went back and forth and back and forth. And I just kept saying, Hillary's not going to win. She's not going to win. And everybody was sure she was a shoe in. And I said, misogyny, misogyny and determination to prevent women from having any share in political power in this country has been has been has been enforced over and over and over again through chicanery, through violence, through you know all kinds of illegal ways, and it's so endemic, it's so deep in the American psyche that 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 she's not going to win, and it'll come through character assassination. So it was You're right spot on it was but this is really early in the campaign because 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 i was reading i was researching how over and over and over and over again dating you know way early um that uh, legislatures uh, in you know in in state after state in the colonies in state after state the male legislators would go to all kinds of, you know, bribery and trickery to block women from being enfranchised. In New Jersey, women actually had the vote after the revolution. The Constitution of New Jersey in 1776 enfranchised women. Women voted in New Jersey from 1776, African-American and white women, till, wow. 18, till 1807, till 1807. Women oh my voted God. in New Jersey. And, 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 there was a contested election and the male power structure decided that basically they couldn't control these women. And so they just took away the vote. They just passed legislation and women were disenfranchised. In the state of Oregon, a referendum to enfranchise women was defeated six times, South Dakota wow. seven times. So th that history has been suppressed, the history of the denial of the vote to more than half the population has been suppressed. You didn't learn about it in school. I didn't learn about it in school. It's still not being taught in school. And if it is, it'll be taught as that women were given the vote. And the other thing that's, that's left out of the story when it is told is the amount of violence women suffered, mob being attacked by mobs, um, being illegally arrested and force fed, uh, so, so writing this book was really traumatic, <laughs> as you wow. can tell. 
I still get wound up about it, even, even though. Sorry. I love that about you, Penny Coleman. I love your enthusiasm. You know your stuff. And it's not just knowledge that exists in your brain or outside of who you are. It's part of who you are. You're impassioned. You're it's your, you're a purpose-driven woman, right? So, yeah. oh my yeah. God, this is amazing. Uh, you're talking and again, not, my cheeks are burning. My eyes are <laughs> almost squinting shut from the giant smile on my face. I would love to have you speak on stage. I want to bring you to California and have you talk, share your talk. I, I know tons of people who would be interested to hear everything you just said and more. And I just, I don't know. I just think it would be fantastic when we start to open up and everyone is vaccinated. I would like to have you um, speak at an event uh, that I would create here in the okay. Bay Area. Well, that would that would be that would be fun. You're I'd, fun. I'd You're happy, awesome. I'd be happy to do, I'd be happy to do that. Well, let me ask you, I could see how you're a mentor for others, or, you know, but have you had a mentor or did you have someone who, uh, I know clearly your father had a big impression on you. Who, who else maybe was a sponsor or a mentor in your life? Well, actually my, my father was, uh, you know, it's very complicated because he was, uh, unfortunately he died, he was, he died at the age of 50. And so, wow. in, uh, so in my head, he started getting cancer at 47. So from the ages of 47 to 50. Um, and in my head, I like to imagine that he would have changed his views, but he was very much mired in some of the old Freudian stuff. And oh, he yeah. was forever telling me that it was too bad. He would sort of like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. I had that kind of father. Yeah. That it was too bad I was so intelligent and that I talked so oh, much. Oh my. <laughs> and yet I was very much the one that that he got along with best. Right. So it was really complicated and very confusing for me. Very and I still suffer with the legacy of that that it too bad, you know, yeah. too bad, Penny. So well, too bad for him that he didn't get to see what a remarkable leader you are and what a, what a, a, an inspiration you are to others like across the world and what an incredible person you are, right? It, it well, doesn't matter. Well, yeah. thank you. But in, so in terms of, for me, my mentors, and this, this probably won't surprise you, but I have to say I have a constellation of women in my head yeah. who I've written about who who really guide me and it was a, a few years ago one of our nieces uh stayed with us for about six months and one day in total exasperation she blurted out and she said it's so hard to know what you two are talking about i don't know if somebody's dead or if there's alive because <laughs> because linda of course reads every word of every one of my books so when I say Elizabeth, or when I say Fannie Lou Hamer, she knows exactly who I'm talking about, somebody who's been dead a very long time. But poor Julia was so lost, she didn't realize <laughs> that, all, that all these dead women are very much a part of who I think about or who we talk about. Mary McLeod Bethune um, is, is, a, is, a, is another one. So it was this, fun, <laughs> it was this funny moment. Um, but, 
Well, they live on, they live on through you, Penny, and your books. But I've already I, purchased three of your books since you've oh, been no. talking. <laughs> no. but, but for me, like if I do a Fannie Lou Hamer, the great civil rights activist, that's famous for her line of I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. If I do a Fannie Lou Hamer, that means I do something incredibly brave. And if I do a Frances Perkins, it means that I do something really strategic. And so these, these the women that I've written about um, are, are sort of have a place in my brain as sort of a role model or as someone um, who, who, who sort of exemplifies a particular kind of behavior or, or attitude. So I, that's sort of the constellation. Well, I'm, I'll tell you what, Penny Coleman, I'm never going to say you guys again, and I'm going to call it, I'm doing a Penny Coleman. <laughs> I, I love it. Oh my gosh, you've made. <laughs> I'm going to be it. very conscientious about the words that come out of my mouth, and I'm going to think I'm doing a Penny Coleman. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Thank you. That's yes. Great. <laughs> you, you, well, you know you've made it when you become a verb. <laughs> okay, that's great. Well, I'll, I'll add that. And I will become braver because I have to admit it is in the category of the things I don't counter. So I'm going to have to become braver. I will follow in your footsteps. So I will do a Susan Freeman and I will now pick up the, the cudgel and start attacking the use of the word guys. <laughs> and, and do so let me ask do, so the person who attacked me didn't say why which was not it's almost like when you tell a child uh who is at the age where they can reason you tell them no because i said so instead of no and why i want to know the why i want to learn i want people to understand the importance of it because then it makes them voluntarily change their own behaviors once you change their thoughts attitudes and beliefs they will change their own behaviors. If they don't learn why, then they're just gonna think you're a jerk, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, so we're, we've got a lot of work to do, Penny Coleman, coast to coast, <laughs> we better get busy. There you um, go. Well, let me ask you on that same note, what can women do to lift other women in business? And something meaningful, you know, I get a lot of women who say, be nice to women. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Or you know, so is there some action item you can share or how can we help other women in business? Well, actually, I, 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 I have some one, one, which, of course, will not surprise you, but I, I feel pretty, pretty intense about the need for women to know their history, to know that there was a Rebecca Lukens in the 1800s who, when her husband died and his business was bankrupt, he, she took it over and made it a premier manufacturer of boilerplates. Or Miriam Leslie did the same thing, took over her, her dead husband's failing business, uh, publishing business. Or Maggie Walker, an African-American, um, the president of a, of a bank and insurance, that to, to know. And the reason I feel so strongly about this is right after my book, Rosie the Riveter, was published, I was speaking in an organization called NEW, Non-Traditional Employment for Women, and it was training women to do hard hat jobs. And I was giving a talk on Rosie the Riveter, and I was showing in those days slides, you know, 35 millimeter slides of women uh, who had worked during World War II with, you know, riveters and welders and driving cranes and, and um, trucks. 
And in the middle of my presentation, the lights were off, a woman shouted, stop, in a, in a really kind of scary voice. And I sort of jumped back. And then I said, um, okay. And I, somebody turned on the lights. And it, with a fierce look on her eye and pointing her fingers at me, she said, you mean to tell me that women have already done those jobs? And the woman sitting next to her looked at her and she said, of course, that's what she's telling you. And I said, yes, that is what I'm telling you. These are real photographs. And then she said, then why do we have to keep proving ourselves over and over again? And one of the things from my analysis that I see is that has made it so difficult for women to move forward and to stay forward to, to make a gain and to stay with the gain is because of being duped into thinking one more generation gets duped into thinking that women have never done these things. And women have always been doing these things. They've been business women, you know, they've been explorers, they've, they've been botanists. I mean, they courageous. Been, yeah. It's, yes. I think it's built into us. The, the, you know, we, we don't have, I, I personally don't have a scared bone in my body. I mean, I mean, we're courageous in that if it's got to get done, you just do it. Right. Right. It doesn't, I don't sit and think about my gender before I embark on a project or, you know what I'm saying? And I think most women are that way. We just don't get recognized for the work. Another thing I know to be true is women are famous for, analyzing the situation such that we prevent problems, whereas men will let chaos ensue, then swoop in and clean it up and get the white knight reward, right? We don't do that. We prevent well, the problem and then we're not rewarded for that because the problem didn't happen. Well, except there's a, there's a wonderful thing. One of the great suffragists who's actually a disabled woman, Miriam Breckenridge from Tennessee, during the, the fight for ratification in, in Tennessee, she's giving speeches about the fact of, you know, um, let's look at what men have done. Let's look at the condition of the schools, of the economy, of the state of affairs in Tennessee. And what, what does make us think that men, men are more worthy of the vote than women? I mean, I, I sort of flipped that around of that it seems like there are lots of cases where men make a mess. <laughs> and then make it even messier when they clean it up. And then maybe a new crew in the mess keeps going on and on. But I also agree with you that oftentimes women clean it up. Did that make sense? Yes, so, it does. Yeah, so, I was a little bit flipping that. But I, so the first thing I really feel strongly about, and this was really interesting to me during women's fight for the vote, they knew their history. They, they knew whose shoulders they were standing on, whose footsteps they were walking in. They were empowered, they were inspired, they were linked, and there was a real strength that came. This is something in my experience in the 1970s, um, you know, second wave movement that was not so obvious. It was, it's to me, one of the really startling differences uh, in, in, the, in the different, in the different waves of women's activism is the earlier pioneers, they revered their, 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 their pioneers. They revered, and they knew about them. They thought about their strategies. They thought about what they had done and how they had done it. And so I, I feel that that's one thing about supporting women 
is that. The second thing I feel, which is something that I do as much as I can, is make women your go-to. When, when I started being a freelance writer in 1987, I noticed in all the magazine articles, the experts who were quoted were always men. Men, yes. men, 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 men. So I made a concentrated effort to track down and to get a whole portfolio, Rolodex full of women experts. So in any article that I wrote about parenting or about children or about sport, any article I ever wrote, I always made sure I would make the extra effort to find a, a, a woman expert to quote. And at one point, I remember my husband at the time, now my ex, was I don't I we sort of bumped into him and I casually mentioned that that's what I was doing and he looked at me and he said well that's because you hate men and I remember looking at him and saying <laughs> but you know that again was you know an, an attempt to you know silence me or right to, silence that so one of the so that's a simple thing to do another thing to do is i'm an avid jigsaw maker puzzler i'm always buying jigsaw puzzles and i discovered recently a, a company a woman-owned company that makes jigsaw puzzles so now i'm buying my jigsaw puzzles from them so one of the ways to support when you're thinking about hiring a professional when you're thinking about where you're going to go out to eat, where you're thinking about what, you know, where you're going to, you know, participate in anything. Think, think about that. Am I supporting women or am I not supporting women? And, and I'm not saying that every, that your doctor, your dentist, your lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, they all have to be women. Why but, not? Exactly. But that's <laughs> what I was going to say is why not? And, and I'm the, you know, I have brothers, I raised three sons, they're feminist sons. Yeah. Um, and they have women, their dentists are, are women. I mean, that, that it, so it's. I'll tell you, Penny Coleman, that um, I have a, a daughter, a stepdaughter who lives in Washington, DC. She was in the Peace Corps and she met the woman of her dreams and they married and they both live in DC. And my stepdaughter works for the federal government and she has this saying that, um, and look, I'm not a man hater. I love my husband. He supports the cause. He's a feminist. My son is a feminist, but my stepdaughter has this saying that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bike. <laughs> and they just gave birth to baby twin boys. So they're going to oh. raise two boy uh, feminists, I'm sure. There yeah, and they speak several languages and they're just very, um, you know, open-minded global worldview women. And I'm proud to call them family. Great, excellent. Sounds yeah. exciting. Good she she believes your dentist needs to be a woman and your doctor needs, she, she actually was on my podcast once and she said that. She said, people think about, you know, um, how can we support women in business? Well, you have to see your dentist, your eye doctor, your, your OBGYN, your, you know, general practitioner, make them women, make right. sure they're all women. So I think that's a great, um, I agree. I guess my, my caveat was like, in, I have a personal situation where I need to see an expert and the only expert who, who can deal with my issue happens to be a man. So I guess that was, I think what my caveat was, was yes was there can be situations where that that's you know that's not totally viable 
Well, we and, need to change that. We need to get women in that uh, specialty, right? So, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, when I was a little girl, my father said to me, and he was a pathologist, um, he said to me, well, you know, you're really smart. I'm so proud of you. You're going to grow up someday. and You could be a nurse or a teacher. And I'm like, huh. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with either one of those things, but I think yeah. I would have preferred him to say anything you want to be. Yeah, um, your father and my father could have had coffee. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I looked at him and I said, that was a little chauvinist. And he said, you're 10. How do you know that word? I'm like, I'm your daughter. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, that's a great story. That's a great yeah. story. I said, why can't I be a doctor like you? He goes, oh, I just didn't think that way. Of course you okay. can. That's great. Yeah, and he learned quickly. To just, to just the other one more thing in terms of supporting women, which clearly you are a, a genius at is to connect, connect, connect. I, I think, and, and again, I'm not kind of so good at this because there's a part of me that's a little bit shy, but I, I do know that, that to support women, women need to be out there. Women need to put themselves out there. They need to connect with each other. And, you know, it's like what Catherine has done, you know, the, the, yes. or the, the curated community that she has. So that, that can be hard for women. And it also can be hard for women who are juggling so many demands. Yes. And, and, but, but that would be supporting women is to put yourself in a position where you're out there and you're supporting women and women can support you. Uh, it's, it's just such an important piece of of doing that is putting yourself putting yourself forward and and speaking out when one of my the when I was teaching one of the things that always would just be something I would talk about over and over and over again is the men in the class would not hesitate to talk and the women would sit there with their hands folded and over and over again, I would point that out. And I'd say, you have to have a voice. You have to put yourself out there. You have to connect with people in this class. Um, and the funny thing is, one of the last classes I taught, it was a really small class. And this was just, just before my term as a distinguished lecturer had ended after a long time. And there were only, um, there were six young women and they were all teachers. They were getting their master's degree. And they had, it had just been like the, the same pulling teeth to get them to talk. And as they're walking out the door, one of them looks at me, they're all sort of standing there. And one of them looks at me, it's just, she's the designated spokesperson. And she said, Professor Coleman, we just want you to know that we talk more in your class than we've ever talked before. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I great. I, but I said more, you've got to do more. Women have got to speak up. You've got to speak up at town meetings. You've got to speak up at work. You've got to speak up and have your voices heard and don't let yourself be silenced or put down. Make your, make, make your, voice, make your voice heard. I, I just feel that, that that's a way to support women. If, if, if women as a group were uh, just across the round the world continue to make their voice heard over and over and over and over and over again that again would create a kind of psychic and you know uh, energy that that i i think would would overwhelm 
so much of the the horrors that are going on in the world today. I agree. I agree. I think that um, we are all made of energy and our high vibration can come together and really move mountains. Um, Penny, you are the me on the East Coast. <laughs> I adore you. I mean, this is this has just been such a great conversation. My head is spinning with ideas on how to um, raise awareness about you, what you do, and to share your message of connectivity amongst women and to literally, I mean, people, if you're going to hire someone, why not hire a woman? You yeah. know, if, if you're, if you're serious about equity in the workplace and equality in the world, hire the underrepresented, right? Yeah. Um, yes, 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 yes. Totally. Put your money where your mouth is, folks. So yes. um, let me ask you, what has been your biggest challenge or setback and how did you overcome it? Well, I, I, gee, the, probably the, the one that's most searing would many years ago, dates back many years ago, but it was the death of my, one of my brothers at the age of 20 in 1966, and then my father in 1969. And then uh, in the middle of that, I'd gotten married. And by 1970, 1972, I had three children. And, and, and that was a period, uh, they were out of sync deaths. I, it wasn't a time historically where there was any kind of consciousness or awareness or right. dealing and thinking with death. And it was, um, and my mother, you know, my sister of course was six. And so it was, and I sort of had been put in sort of an arranged marriage. My father had really pressured me to marry a man who had been really courting me so that I could, you know, take care of my sister and mother. So um, it was um, very, very um, challenging and intense. But the interesting thing later is fast forward many, many years when I got a request from an editor about writing a book about death, she really was more interested. Apparently there was a TV program at the time about the crypt or something, which of course, as a non-TV watcher, I knew nothing about, but she had read one of my books and loved my writing. And so she approached me and she sort of wanted me to focus on death. And Susan, I, I really struggled. I remember sitting on my couch. This was probably about 1996. Rosie had been published in 95. So this is like 1996. And I remember sitting on the couch, just sort of shell-shocked. What, what am I going to do? I didn't have another book project. I was, you know, needing to put my sons through college. I had college bills. I but I couldn't write this book. I couldn't touch the subject. I couldn't do this. I still was reeling all those many years later from John's death and my father's death and sort of functioning at a level, but there was sort of a, that, that topic was just too intense. And then I had this idea that what, what if I wrote a book that I think would have helped me at the time and a book that I think would help other people. And that's what I did. And awesome. And so it's, it's actually was named the best of the best of the 21st century. It came out in 1995. Um, it's, it's now available in soft cover and 
I did all the, it's chock full of photographs. I do my own photo research and photography, I do a lot of photography. Uh, so, the, and it really, it was a really powerful and incredible book to write. And there were just some really sacred moments. I remember once Linda came home and I was on the, on our top floor, we, we, we use all four floors of our house. And I was sitting with paper strewn all over the place. And I was desperately trying to figure out how to write about how death is dealt with in different cultures. And I just was stuck. And Linda came home and at the time she had a number of international students, all, all of whom I knew because we would go to conferences and I would get to know them and then I'd sort of be the tour leader. So I, I, I knew many of the students um, from Nigeria, from India, from Greece. Uh, and so Linda said, well, what about my students? So she asked her students. So uh, we met. And it was incredible. I met with a whole group of students from around the world. And they and it's there's a section in my book where I they told me about the different ways that death is handled in their particular cultures. So it, and I actually was able for the first time to just write a sentence or two about John's death in, in terms of the context of the of the of the book and and so and there's a whole chapter on um, on uh, death in everyday life in the arts and in the music and at the time my mother who was a notable notable noted uh, painter ar artist um, and was dying of cancer at the time and one of her paintings which she had done on a really an, old, an antique piece of wood of, of Lazarus and it's, it's actually in in my book and the Lazarus figure you can see is my father and my mother's in the picture and I'm in the painting. I mean, it's this whole family painting. It's a large painting, which, which uh, actually one of my sons now has. Um, and I was, she was, it was near the, the end, just before she died, I had the page proofs. I, I had actually gotten the page proofs and I wrote about that. I wrote about in, in that chapter, I wrote about my mother dealing with death by painting this, this one, Death is Everywhere, Images in the Arts and Everyday Life. And the publisher reproduced the painting. And so I went to her house with the page proofs you know, that would go to the publisher to make the book. And I showed it to her and she sort of wasn't, she didn't have a lot of words at that point, although she looked healthy, although she, she wasn't, but she hadn't gotten, you know, emaciated and all the dreadful things that had happened. And it was an incredible experience because literally, I, I kid you not, the smile literally started at her toes and went all the way up her body until it just blossomed on her face. And so that, that's sort of a, for me, a really powerful kind of thing about how this incredible trauma for me of these early deaths, then all that many years later, um, came forth in this, um, this process for me in writing this book. So you manifested it, it manifested itself in something remarkable. And, you know, so I, I, I get that. I get that. So people in my life that I come across or whom I know, I should say not that, but whom uh, I'm talking to a writer, I better make sure I get my grammar right. Um, people I come across or people whom I know 
that have not suffered any trauma or tragedy, um, their perspective just isn't there, right? So those of us who have, we have a unique and different perspective, which I, as much as one could easily say, I wish I had never experienced trauma and tragedy, I wouldn't change a thing because my perspective is one of empathy and understanding and seeking deeper meaning and, and, and greater connection. Right. So, um, yeah, I get you, Penny. I get you, Penny Coleman. Um, <laughs> well, well, this has been fascinating. It, it, we're going to wrap it up, but I'm going to hate wrapping it up. I mean, I could visit with you all day. I, I want to fly out there and, and get outside. <laughs> well, and you're, you're welcome. It's a beautiful day here. And yeah, and I, I, <laughs> I really, really a, a, so very much appreciate. I've actually been far more candid than I have ever been in an interview. Um, it's so, my gift. Yeah, it really is. But, but really, I, I, I so wish that that the listeners with this would sort of think about all, for example, going back to my theme of having written so many bi biographies and social histories uh, of women is sort of think about what women's names could roll off, roll off the, the tip of their tongue. And 2009, 2019, we, we, Linda had a conference in, in Scotland. And so I, as I always do when we travel, I set up a road trip um, and we went toured, I drove through England and all the way through Scotland, going to all the statues and landmarks that had been erected celebrating the 2018 centennial of, of some English women getting the getting the, the vote. And in Glasgow, there's a women's library. It's unique in the world. And the founder said to me in the middle of the conversation that her mission in life was to have the names of women roll off, roll off people's tongues, that people would just know these women. And so I, it would be wonderful for me for um, listeners, and I'm sure you've got a list of women uh, who's who who you know well enough that you can evoke them and think about them and talk about them to other people because I, I think that there's I, so much power and inspiration that can come from that I do and you're now one of those people I mean <laughs> definitely well Penny Coleman it has been a pleasure and folks thank you for listening in um this has been one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had in the 360 conversations I've had on my podcast. This one is in the top two. I would say that for sure. Um, I, I want to continue our relationship in some way, shape or form, make it real, make plans, make reservations uh, and just do this because you are just incredible and get you and Kat out here and you know, have some kind of event where you can tell your story. You have moved me. Uh, why not put you in front of a crowd of women and you can move them as well? Well, this has been uh, a, a unique and very special. I'm a little bit uh, uh, thinking about, goodness gracious, this has been incredible. So thank you. for. <laughs> Are you blushing, Penny Coleman? Yeah, I'm a little bit. <laughs> Oh my gosh, did I really do this? Did I really talk about all of that? So amazing. <laughs> thank, thank you for being who you are and what you're doing in the world. And because you also are amazing and giving real gifts and real support to women. So thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for listening in and we'll see you next time.